do us a quick favor guys hit the follow subscribe button share this with someone who would benefit from it and help us grow as the more we grow the better the episodes we'll get thanks guys for helping us and let's get into the episode Welcome back to this episode of the Sculpt Podcast. Today, we're going through how you do one thing is how you do all things and how I don't agree with that at all. Now, if you've listened to these types of episodes before, you would know that I come with my receipts or at least I try to. And always when I try and explain this as well, I try and add a little bit of a disclosure here. It's merely my opinion. Um, I do like to try and come with receipts of evidence, scientific data, things like that. But still, when I look for data and when I look for research, of course, I'm only looking for things that will typically feed that narrative. Of course, if there's something that is contrary, then it would probably alter my narrative. But then I'm probably not going to make a video on it. So I do try and make the most neutral uh, and just fact-based videos as possible, but there will always be flaw. There will always be flaw, and it may not be uh, obvious to you. It may not be obvious to me. But when I always make these types of videos, even if it's a good episode, there's something probably wrong with it. And and that's something that I do. Um, I, I become more and more aware of. Is some people will agree with me, some people won't agree with me, and I'm, I'm never going to be able to please everyone. Um, but uncomfortable truths are uncomfortable and sometimes a lot of the time actually i would say that a lot of the things that i have to even dissect is merely my uh, merely vocabulary so when we talk about specific words that i touch on throughout this episode sometimes i just don't like the usage of the word as i think it's overused and maybe it has the wrong definition now but really the inherent meaning um has validity but anyways let's get straight into what i'm going to be talking about so Four, four main touch points here. Now, touch point one would be the mental resource allocation. Now, remember, the topic is how you do one thing is how you do all things. Now, I've got four analogies for you just to start off. And again, if you also haven't done these episodes with me before, I am reading off my MacBook. So if it sounds scripted, to a degree it is, but. Imagine your mind as a smartphone with multiple apps running. When you have too many apps open simultaneously, the phone's performance suffers. Similarly, juggling too many tasks at once can strain your mental resources. Okay, that's the first topic. Now, topic two is skill-specific expertise. So developing expertise in different skills is like learning to play various musical instruments. Mastering the piano doesn't automatically make you proficient at the guitar. Each instrument requires its own set of techniques and practices. Now, topic three is adaptability and context. So, adapting to different situations is comparable to changing communication styles. Just as you wouldn't use the same tone when talking to a child as you would with a colleague, adapting to your communication to fit the context is essential. Now, topic four. This is where I'm using this vocabulary, motivation. I'm using the word motivation here as its true meaning, not what you probably use it as. I'm saying motivation is the reason for action. Just like if I was to press record on this camera right now, the motivation for me pressing record is because I wanted to film a video. So when we're saying motivation, this usage of motivation is only the reason for action. So motivational factors. Motivation is like a fuel for... Yeah, there we go. Motivation is a fuel for actions. 
and different tasks require different types of fuel. Just as a car may run on gasoline or electricity, individuals may be motivated by intrinsic satisfaction, external rewards, or other factors depending on the task at hand. Okay, those are the four topics. This this video, honestly, could be hours. Like, I have, I think, 20 or so pages. 22 pages. So, it's best that we just get straight into it, honestly. Alright, mental resource allocation. So, the cognitive load theory. So, what cognitive load theory is, it's proposed by John Sweller, and he suggests that the human brain has limited capacity for processing information, and it emphasizes the importance of managing the mental load to optimize learning and problem solving. So, the studies using neuroimaging techniques such as fMRI reveal increased brain activity and reduced efficiency when individuals are subject to excessive cognitive loads. When people engage in various tasks simultaneously, cognitive load increases affecting performance and decision making in each domain. So, at a very, very basic level, I have a power board in front of me that's down here, and it's only got six adapters that you can plug into, right? There's a reason why it's not seven, because if there was seven, then this line may not work because it's trying to allocate to the other six evenly. But if it's got one taking too much, so whatever that 100% is at the bottom of the board, if we divide that by six, each of those six things that are being powered around me right now are going to get one-sixth of that 100%. Now, if that could only take six at a time, because that's one-sixth, which is... Let's do the math real quickly. Um... What is a six of a hundred? That's poor for me. I probably would be able to work it out, but um, for the sake of embarrassment, let's do it here. Okay, that was a bit tougher. It was 16.666. So if each of those power adapters can only give 16.66%, as soon as I add a seventh, then whatever 100 divided by seven is, okay, 14, so there's 2% that's missing each time. Well, when I add a new power outlet, so there's 7, now 14% of that electricity that is flowing, right? It, it can only take 6 on. So if we add a new one, then all of these other lights or electricity um, adapters that I'm using are going to take a hit. Now, if you keep on doing that, and you keep giving that small 16%, if you have 10, then you're only, get, you're only giving 10% of that 100% at the end, or whatever that percent is, right? So when you're doing too much and giving all you have to a specific thing, you have to sacrifice. So if you were to have all six on, and you were to just have one power outlet plugged into that adapter, then that's going to get all the focus, okay? If you have six, then you're giving 16.66% to all. And as soon as you keep on adding, it gets less and less each time, okay? I think that there is an analogy about that similarly in the next few minutes, but... Okay, the decision fatigue. So, we spoke about this with Dan Abram, uh, Abrahams as well in a very early episode. I think it was like episode 22. So, decision fatigue refers to the uh, deterioration, uh, the deteriorating quality of decision made by an individual after a long session of decision making. So, this concept, popularized by Roy F. Baumeister, is suggesting that the decision making consumes mental resources that become depleted over time. So, just as if you were to run a marathon, every single kilometer, every single kilometer that you run, it becomes harder and harder, or at least you put more strain on your body. It may not become mentally harder, but it puts more strain on your body. And if you were to make a decision, 
and we were to interchange one kilometer for every decision, the more decisions you make, the more fatigued you're going to be making with decisions. This is what we spoke about with Dad Abrahams. Uh, if you haven't watched that episode, then, oh God, I always forget. I think it's just like, click this side and you can watch that video with Dan Abrahams. Now, scientific background for the decision fatigue is that research using controlled experiments demonstrates a decline in decision quality and increased likelihood of decision avoidance as individuals make successive choices. So, when faced with numerous decisions, individuals may prioritize and allocate mental resources selectively, impacting the quality of decisions in different areas of life. Now, something about human beings is we are inherently lazy. And that's actually a good thing because when it comes to, um, let's say, trying to become good at something, we will try and take the easiest route to getting there. Now, if you put a little bit of effort to find in what the highest ROI tasks are, then you can become very good at it compared to someone who is not aware of those things that are actually getting you twice as fast as they are to X goal. So we are lazy. And I think that humans should be lazy because it would be stupid if we did something with no ROI. That's why I try and explain to people that I speak with that everything is about the return on investment, even if it's at the most micro level. There's always going to be a return on investment. If you didn't do it, you, sorry, if you did it, not expecting a return on your investment, you wouldn't do it. And I actually, maybe haven't thought about this deep enough yet, but I actually don't know of too many situations of where you wouldn't get an ROI, even if it's bad, which then gives you an ROI because you know not to do it again. So every single interaction has a transaction. And I'm not saying that um, interactions are transactional in terms of you get something back every single time or you should get something back every time you give. But I'm just saying whatever it is, even if you don't get something back and you're expecting something back, at least you know that transaction that you got is not worth going back again. All right. Now, the psychological studies on focus and attention. So, psychological studies on focus and attention explore how individuals allocate their attentional resources to various tasks. Attention is a crucial component of cognitive processes, influencing learning, memory, and performance. So, eye tracking studies, EEG, which is a very complicated word. It's called electro Fallon scientist, I know. Uh, research provided insights into how attention is distributed across different stimuli and tasks. You may have seen it before, like on YouTube, where they do eye tracking um, videos. Now, it's probably not the type of videos that. Mm, <laughs> if you've seen eye tracking videos, and you're probably watching a little bit of a suspicious video, but, um, anyways you may know what those videos look like. So individuals may excel in tasks that align with their ability to allocate attention effectively, but this allocation may vary across different activities. So if you were to do six activities a day, one of them could be, okay, make a breakfast, easy. Then it could be drive to school or your parents driving you to school, whatever that is. And then you've got the first period, you've got the second period, you've got the third period, you've got the fourth period. And however more periods you have in the day, I had four most at, at most schools. I think it was four, yeah. And then you go home and do something else. And whatever those are, let's say you've got six tasks in a day. You probably won't give, just like that power board, 
16.66% to each of them because that is your 100% to each of those tasks. It may look like 10% to breakfast, 4% to the drive to school, 1% in the first period, 70%, maybe that's not the correct maths there, but whatever, 60% in second period, 0% in third, and 0.1% in fourth, and then when you get home, 10%. So whatever it looks like, it's not going to be that 16.66% like we have on the power boards. So, got a few analogies. So, juggling multiple tasks is akin to managing various balls in the air simultaneously. So, the challenge of dividing attention and maintaining control over each task become harder each time that you add a ball. So, if you're juggling, I got up to four balls um, early last year. That's what I was working on for quite a while. Every month, I was developing a new skill set until it's over. Not fun. Um, anyways, <laughs> Juggling these balls, every time you add a new ball, it's going to get harder. Trust me. Actually, two is also harder than three. But generally, when you add a ball above three balls when you're juggling, it gets harder and harder. And you have to focus all of your attention on each ball every single time. So out of this, you know, 100% that you've got throwing all these balls, every time you add a ball, less and less focus goes onto them. So when you've got three balls, you've got 33.3% on each ball. When you add four, you've got 25%. When you add fives, you've got 20% and so on, right? So it gets harder and harder. And I think that's pretty clear here. Now, the brain is like a computer processor and I've made a video about this before. So if you want to look at that video, you can also go here. Now I'm going to have to remember these timestamps because like, this is going to be annoying to put in. I always say this, right? I think the first one was eight minutes and the second one was 14 minutes. Nick, please remember. Right. The brain is like a computer processor with limited bandwidth and has a finite capacity for processing information and making decisions. Similar to the power board below, right? It can only allocate specific uh, specific power to or a, a, a maximum and minimum specific power to an outlet. Let's say you're plugging in a USB. It can only give X percent of power to that USB because... It also has to do the other three or the other one or the other none, whatever it is. You can only allocate a specific amount. So the next topic, okay? So the skill-specific expertise. Now, Erickson's deliberate practice. So Anderson Erickson's concept of deliberate practice emphasizes the importance of purposeful and focused practice in skill development. It suggests that expertise is not merely a result of time spent on an activity, but rather the quality and intensity of practice. Now, a few of my older episodes, I spoke about this in terms of my training and how I believe my training is very efficient and it gets better every single time because I am actually using the compound effect to get better every single time. Now, from memory, I actually do believe that Anders Ericsson actually is the guy who made the 10,000 hour rule, which would make a bit of sense to this, just thinking about that. Studies supporting deliberate practice demonstrate that individuals who engage in focused, goal-oriented, and challenging practice sessions tend to achieve higher level of expertise in their respective fields. Now, Sculpted App has a tracker for this, which is why I why, why I have it in the in the Sculpted App. But when you focus on refining a skill set, there is a direct and near immediate return on improvement. Now the better you become, the smaller and smaller that improvement is. That's what the, uh, I believe the parabola, oh girl, first parabola, please be parabola. That's going to be so embarrassing. It's not, 
Um, per. Per. A. Bo. La. Please. Okay, yeah. It's the parabola. So, when you start, and it's the learning curve. So, if you start here, you start to see a quick curve of improvement. And then the higher and higher you go, the steeper and steeper it becomes, and the harder and harder it is to improve. So, it's a very small refinement to that point. Now, back to Ericsson's deliberate practice. So, skill-specific expertise is more likely to develop when individuals engage in deliberate practice, honing their abilities with clear focus on improvement. So, clear focus on improvement. That is a key factor here. Now, where this comes in relation to the main topic is for everything that you are doing, if you are supposedly doing all things like you do one thing, then how are you meant to do that when you're doing that for everything else? So what I mean by that, if I was to give the same attention to football as I, sorry, the same attention to learning how to ski, yeah, ski on ski slopes, snow, you know, all that stuff. If I put the same attention and detail into learning the ski that I do for football, then I can't even give the same attention to football anymore because football is taking up so much of my day and so it should be. Therefore, if I was to do that for skiing, then, okay, let's just say the six hours that I spend on football each day, I give another six hours to skiing, okay? Now there's 12 hours of my day designated to skill acquisition or skill refinement, you could say. Skill on all fronts, okay? Mental and physical. Six hours each day adds up to 12 because I've got the football and skiing. Now I've only got two hours a day, two to four hours a day, of which I have three, okay? So what that looks like, meals, jobs around the house, whatever that looks like, rest, whatever, okay? Four hours, okay? So one, we actually already know that the more decisions I make, the worse my decision-making gets. So when I spend 12 hours on skill refinement, whichever one I spend... Whichever one I start first is going to be where I get the most reward from because I do it first. Because the more and more decisions I make, the worse I get. We already established that in topic one, okay? So I spend so much time trying to develop a new skill set, then I'm less efficient at doing it. Now, me actually even doing another skill refinement session on top of what I'm already doing, so going from six to 12 on another thing, would be completely pointless. This is an exceptional, um, an exception to the rule. Example, okay, because no one actually probably could afford to do that. Uh, maybe if you're a bit younger, you don't have a job, things like that. But if you're my, if you're my age, you probably can't afford to do that unless you've got a good, uh, good, like a very wealthy family who can let you do that. But I have to do other things in my day so that I can do this six hours, right? I have to get money i have to do this podcast i have to do all of these other things and most people don't even have the luxury of actually doing things of which they choose i think most of the world doesn't even have the 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 privilege to even choose the things that they do okay so when you and also i should explain i've only given you one example in my day of adding a new thing if i was to add two more things because apparently how you do one thing is how you do all things if i was to add a third thing that I've got 18 hours of my day is now going to skill refinement. Now I've only got a few hours to sleep. I've only got six hours to sleep now. So 
And, and again, we also know that the more decisions I make, the worse my decisions get. So that's not even possible at that point. So the more and more I do, the less and less I have to give. This is where sacrifice comes. You have to sacrifice something. So neuroplasticity and skill acquisition. So neuroplasticity, which I've also made an episode about here. So if you haven't watched that one, check it out. Again, I've got to put this in. It's going to take a long time. See, the reason why I'm annoyed that it's going to take a long time is because I can't give too much effort to editing in this podcast because I have to go and do other things. So for me, it's about the sacrifice here. Okay. Anyways, bit of a random one. Okay. Neuroplasticity refers to the brain's ability to recognize itself by performing new neural connections. In the context of skill acquisition, it implies that the brain can adapt and optimize its structure to support the learning and mastery of specific skills. So research using neuroimaging techniques such as MRI demonstrates changes in the brain's structure and function as individuals acquire and master new skills. So skill-specific expertise is closely tied to the brain's ability to adapt and rewire itself in response to the demands of learning and practice, practicing a particular skill. So that is actually a little bit against my narrative, but the reason why that's in there, you'll find out now, hopefully. Maybe actually not right now, but remember that about the neuro, the neuro path links and, and how skill acquisition becomes easier and easier the more you do it, but also becomes harder and harder to see results because of that learning curve and problem. So keeping that in mind, I think I'll come back to it a little bit later. So transfer of training principle. Now, Again, this is against my narrative, although you will see how it ties into the whole story. So the transfer of training principle explores the extent to which skills learned in one context can be applied to another. It addresses the generalization of skills from training environments to real world situations. So research supporting the transfer of training principle examines how skill acquired in specific training scenarios can be effectively applied in related or unrelated contexts. So the degree to which skill-specific expertise transfers to different domains depends on factors such as the similarity of context and the nature of the skills involved. So what I mean by that is, let's say I give six hours to football in my day and I want to give 100% still to learning how to ski. Maybe I don't actually have to give six hours to it because I have a transferable skill set from football. Maybe it looks like four hours instead of six hours. But what I would say to that is that still leaving stones unturned because the way that I go with football is 100%, okay? It's not 80%. If I was giving only four hours to skiing, even if I'm giving the same effort in terms of um, just me giving effort, not on a time basis, just in terms of effort, it's still out of balance because six hours football, four hours skiing. So it's still not 100% each. I have to sacrifice a little bit here, even though I'm getting the same result. 100% to me still looks like a time basis. But that's not a true representation, but that is, for the sake of um, this video, a representation that we're going with. But going into the analogies. So mastering different musical instruments require unique skills, techniques, and muscle memories. So... This is highlighting the expertise in one instrument and it doesn't automatically translate to expertise in another, which I didn't explain there. So I forgot to explain that, right? So there actually may not be any transfer of skills with uh, skiing and football. And it also may mean 
that I actually have to, for me to give 100%, I actually may have to add two hours because of my refinement of football. The six hours that I give the football each day may actually look like eight hours to skiing or 20 hours because the refinement of football that I've got over time has enabled my 20 hours to become six hours. The compound effect, right? So the time that I then give to skiing right now may completely overweigh and outweigh what I give to football because it's a new skill. So I have to spend much more time on it. Now, again, the context of this video is the way you do one thing is the way you do all things. So taking that literally. Now, I, I truly doubt when people say this, they are taking it this deep. I don't think people would take it this deep. But for the purpose of this video, we are imagining that they are. Because I, I think there will be some people who... Who, who love that idea? They love the idea of thinking the way you do all th uh, the way you do one thing is the way you do all things. I think people love that, but I don't think people do it. And I think you're trying. You're you're almost seeing why now, right? It's it's actually pretty impossible to do. Like the way you do one thing is the way you do all things. So on that same logic, I should become Gordon Ramsay because I have to make more meals and I have training sessions sometimes. So. All of my effort going to everything I do, it wouldn't be possible. I have to make garbage meals sometimes in terms of a microwave meal or literally just, I don't know, a nut bar because I have to take these hits. I, I, I have to take hits in all these different areas. Yeah. The analogy was, if you play the trumpet and then want to learn the piano, that transferable skill isn't really there. The only transferable skill is maybe you have that framework to go to the next thing, which is exactly what the sculpted app is. It's exactly what the sculpted message is, actually. We're only giving you the framework to become the best at what you want to become at. Okay? Because what I do for football will not directly translate to what you were, that you want to do in your life and what you want to become the best at. So all I'm doing is giving the framework for you to then excel at whatever you want. And it's giving you, based on science, the 10 things of which will help you get there. And that's in any endeavor. You will need these 10 things to help you get wherever you want to become the best at your ability. Now, dancers often specialize in specific styles such as ballet, hip-hop, or contemporary dance. Each style demands distinct movements, techniques, and expressions, illustrating that expertise in one dance style doesn't necessarily transfer seamlessly to others. Okay. Now, this is the third topic, which is adaptability and context. So, situational leadership theory. Now, situational leadership theory, developed by Hersey and Blanchard, posits that effective leadership requires adapting to one's leadership style to the specific needs of a situation or individuals. It recognizes that different situations demand different leadership approaches. Research supporting situational leadership theory explores how leaders who adapt their styles based on situational factors demonstrate increased effectiveness and follow-up satisfaction. So adaptability is crucial in leadership and leaders who can adjust their approach based on the context tend to achieve better outcomes. So putting that in perspective, the theory... is every situation needs to be adapted. Just like 
although I gave a very similar analogy with the, the sorry, a very similar example between football and skiing, there is a form of adaptability between the two. They are similar, don't get me wrong, and they will be transferable skill sets, right? If I was to be a couch potato um, and then try to ski, I have to get physically fit enough to then, to, you know, get off the couch. But because I'm a footballer, skiing is, okay, a little bit easier for me. But adaptability is crucial here. So behavioral economics and decision-making, behavioral economic studies, how psychological and emotional factors influence decision-making. It acknowledges that individuals' choices are often context-dependent and may be very based on situational factors. So all I'm talking about here is actually that I think that a lot of the people who talk about this, all you, how you do one thing is how you do all things. What, what I'm really trying to get into is how when people say that, I don't think that they actually truly know what they're meaning. And also, they may not put it into application. And on top of that, I see the most common thing would actually be people just using this sentence as framework. They only use it for framework. Now, what I mean by that is, you say, okay, how I do one thing is how I would do all things. But it means the thing that they want to be good at, they will do that with the best of their ability. And if they stop doing that and want to do something different tomorrow, they will then, with the same effort, do that new thing. Now, putting that into context for myself, I've said this many times. I could quit football tomorrow and I wouldn't care. Now, every time that I say that, I always try and preface it with say, well, I would care a little bit and it would take a little bit of time for me to adapt. But truly, internally, if I am okay with making that decision, I'm okay with making that decision pretty quickly. And if I've thought about it long enough prior to that decision being final, I'm going to be okay with it and I won't regret it, okay? Maybe I'll regret it because I maybe didn't leave stones unturned, but thinking if I did leave if I did leave stones unturned and I truly gave it everything that I, I, I think I could have done within my will and within my knowledge, then leaving them behind, or let's say it's an injury, I could start something tomorrow and using the same uh, framework that I did with football, go down on a different endeavor. There, I could say that this phrase has some validity, but I wouldn't say that that phrase even works still because, I and again, I think that this is the most common usage of this phrase, but breaking it down, it, do, it still doesn't even work. So what I mean is when people say, the way I do one thing is how I do all things, I would say the way you do one thing is how you would do another thing. But when they say that, sure, they have to then stop the one thing that they were doing. So say for the teacher, they say, the way that I teach is the way I do all things. Okay, but that's not true. So the way that you would teach and the things that you bring to teaching, if you were to stop teaching today and do another thing, the skill set that you've learned how to teach or how to become a leader in an environment, you would then take that into the next situation and become a teacher in or 
use that same skill set that you use there into this new uh, skill. So essentially, that's the better way of saying it because saying that the way that you do one thing is how you do all things doesn't even make sense if you are actually saying that it's just a framework because you do so many different things with different frameworks. The way that I give my attention to football is different to the way that I give my attention to the sculpted app. But the sculpted app attention is a similar attention that I give to three other things because it's less. Okay, football is the number one. And I have many, many different small things on the side of which I can give attention to because it doesn't demand too much of me. So the framework that I've got for there, you can imagine it as like this. If I, if I give six hours to my day to football, but really it's the whole day because everything I do, I make sure helps my football. But if we're, to, if we're talking in terms of effort, direct effort, let's say I give, um, if I'm awake for, let's say, on average, 15 hours, 15 divided by 6. So if I give 2.5%, sorry, if I give 2.5, 2.5, no, oh, how do I explain that properly? 60% of my, 6 hours of my day, sorry is spent with football then the other nine hours of my day is spent doing other things so i guess that would be two so hard doing maths on a podcast but i don't want to take too long thinking about it but okay Five, two fifths of my there we go two fifths of my day is directly focused on football the other three-fifths of my day, I can spend doing other things. Now, one-fifth of my day could be spent doing absolutely nothing. And then the other two-fifths of my day is spending time on seven other small things that I'm doing. That works. And I'm using the same key for, uh, the same keyframes. What am I doing? Final Cut Pro. No, I'm doing, uh, with the same framework, doing all these other things. And I take that same framework doing all these other things. Because that's what the transferable thing is. The framework is the transferable thing, not the effort. Okay, the effort, I have to sacrifice. I do have to sacrifice to go from one thing to the other. Okay, I can't, just like when you're with the power board, you have to sacrifice a percentage every single time that you add, or a ball. You have to sacrifice the focus every single time that you add a new thing. Now, you could argue the fact that, okay, sure, I'm actually already refined enough for this first outlet. I only need to give 5% to it. I only need to give 5% to the next thing. I need to give 20% to the next thing. You you could argue that. And you could say that I do five things and I give 100% to all of those things equally. But what I will counter that with is that took you a long time to get to or the very basic skills. Because for you to be a whiz at football and become a professional footballer and then become a businessman, CEO on the side, you're not going to get there without years it's probably going to be you're 60 years old and you've got three things that you're really really good at or 30 things you're pretty good at now in this type of market i think that three things that you're really good at would benefit you more rather than being okay at 30 but bit of a random one um i think that you can only get to that point very very far down the line and even with that you're probably still going to take sacrifices and hits along the way because you have to take a little bit of percentage out of each every, every single time that you add it. So 
for me, when I talk about sculpted, trust me, as soon as I'm able to outsource and do other things aside from sculpted in terms of the branding, uh, in terms of even owning like the, the title CEO, I would not be the CEO of sculpted as soon as I'm able to outsource that to someone and as soon as I'm able to find someone who can take that title. I can't have that. I, I truly can't be a CEO of a company whilst playing professional football, okay? Now, if you were to say, I won't be a professional footballer then by the time I'm a CEO, brilliant, okay, I'll just be the CEO. But there's a reason, okay? I'm, 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 I'm able to admit defeat sometimes and say, okay, I need to focus on this as much as this is great and as much as I want to be a part of it. I'm not even the right person for the job because the amount of time and effort I need to put in to becoming that person is not even worth me sacrificing my football career because the more I, the better I become the football, the better the company becomes. So it makes sense for me to be the face of Sculpted whilst everything else is outsourced pretty much. Um, okay, the last topic and, and the, the last topic in between, I probably expanded on a little bit too much. It was more just the fact that the framework is the main thing, not the effort. And so many people don't even know what they're saying by saying the way I do one thing is the way I do all things. It just actually doesn't matter. And even if they are saying it in terms of a framework or perspective, it still doesn't even like compute. All right. Self-determination theory. This is the topic four, which is the motivational factor. So self-determination theory posits that individuals are motivated by three innate psychological needs, autonomy, competence, and relatedness. Similar to my theory on passion, the competence one is in here as well, which I also have in my theory of passion. So it emphasizes the role of intrinsic motivation and personal choice in driving behavior. So studies supporting self-determination theory show that individuals who are intrinsically motivated, driven by their own interests and value, are more likely to achieve long-term success and well-being. So motivation is not a one-size-fits-all concept. Different individuals will be, will be driven by different intrinsic factors. So expanding on the self-determination theory, I recently listened to a really good episode with Andrew Schubert and David Goggins. Now, if you've listened to my David Goggins video, um, you can watch it here. <laughs> Nick, that's, an, that's another one we've got to add, 38 minutes. I think it was... Eight minutes, 14 minutes, 20 minutes, and now 38 minutes something. It's a good memory, though. It's a good memory. Anyways, Andrew Huberman, David Goggins. I've got so many notes on that. It was such a good episode. And um, if you have listened to that episode, you'd know David Goggins, he, he scares me a little bit because I see myself in it, and I don't want to go down that path because... What he's doing is actually hindering his physical well-being where I can't do that for football if I want to become the best footballer. So as much as I appreciate David Goggins, I haven't educated myself on him much because of that reason. I listened to this episode and I was like, okay, I truly do think like it. And I made so many notes of which I want to share and what I want to even make many episodes on. Um, yeah, there were so many things that I said in my podcast episodes that I heard David Goggins say, and I'm sure he's been saying it for a while, probably. He's probably been saying it longer than me. Um, well, I'd say it's almost definitely he's been saying it longer than me, but 
I hadn't heard them before. I didn't know that we were that alike. And I think he even used many different, sorry, many similar words to me. He even said that he hates using words that are cliche, like myself. The whole reason why I made this um, episode is because I heard people keep on saying, oh, the way I do one thing is the way I do all things. And if you know me, I just hate hearing these cliche words. And I'm like, oh, I've got to make an episode on that. And a lot of the time, I don't even think about why. I just hear it and I automatically hate it. <laughs> and David Gorgon said this exact same thing. And I was thinking, okay, yeah, that's a little bit scary. But anyways, I'm not trying to say I am David Goggins, by the way. Different guy, different people, but very similar way of thinking. Um, Okay. Another thing that they spoke about, which I thought was really cool, and something that I also have spoke about before, is taking pride in doing difficult things and doing difficult things just for the sake of doing difficult things. Now, I do want to make an episode on this because I learnt a bit more with Andrew Huberman and the stuff that he said. Um, Because I love Andrew Huberman, even where the same, you know, stuff is him, because I think Andrew Huberman is a goat. Um, you probably see, like, quite a few... Um, when I, like, do the branding for the podcast and when I try, you know, I try and make it look like Andrew Huberman a little bit because, like, as I said, he's a goat. Like, I try and make my episodes like Andrew Huberman. Um, anyways, the anterior mid-cingulate cortex, which is the AMCC, this plays a significant role in motivation and the perception of challenges. It is known as the seat of the will to live and has been associated with various aspects of decision-making and goal pursuit. Now... This is what recent studies recently came out as, and this is what was addressed on the Human Podcast. So the recent research has shown that the AMCC may even grow larger in individuals who perceive themselves as challenged and successfully overcome those challenges. Now, relating that to myself, or even David Goggins, we both kind of say that we are, um, like we, we kind of perceive ourselves as challenge and a lot of successful people do they may not even be that challenged but like i said like i always emphasize oh this is my sixth year of playing football like now also i would love to expand that in another episode i played football for most of my life but only as a goalkeeper and seriously it's been six years and, and trust me if you saw me before those six years horrid horrid but anyways I use that as a narrative because it actually kind of feeds into my narrative that those six years that I had when I was truly trying to become something, that helped me. And I saw that always as a bad thing that I was so far behind I need to play catch up. So I'm perceiving myself as challenged. And the more and more I, over, I overcame those challenges, right? Signing for Sydney SC after like two years of playing football, that's ridiculous. That's a massive challenge that I overcame. That's growing my AMCC. David Goggins, 24. This is what I learned about him. 24. Um, Navy SEAL, I think. He he doesn't feel sorry for anyone because he's been through it. And he's personally overcome all of these challenges. And that narrative that he has that he was, he was nothing before feeds into him and his AMCC. So the more he finds... Uh, the more things he finds challenging, the more he does it, the more his AMCC grows. Okay? So, connecting this uh, AMCC to the self-determination theory, it emphasizes intrinsic motivation and personal choice as key drivers of behavior. 
So the N, the AMCC, its role in the will to live aligns with the SDT's emphasis on intrinsic motivation, which is the self-determination theory, SDT, and the internal desire to engage in an activity for its own sake, driven by personal interests and values. So, expanding on a little bit more. AMCC and challenges scientific connection. Studies on the AMCC reveal that when an individual faces challenges, this brain region becomes activated. It is as if the brain is signaling the importance of overcoming obstacles for the individual's well-being. Now, that's like a survival thing, if you actually think about it, which is why, which is why I think in the slide above, it talks about um, the will to live, because it is a survival thing, right? Going and getting your food and tilling your food, a wild, wild animal that you kill, is not an easy thing to do, but you have to do it. And the more you do it, the more you survive. Therefore, this is why it's like the will to live thing. So, individuals who see themselves as challenged and successfully navigate these challenges may experience growth in the AMCC, reflecting the brain's adaptation to resilience and a sense of purpose. The self-determination theory, scientific connection. So the ST... I was hoping I wouldn't say it. I caught myself up to catch myself. I did catch myself. The SDT highlights the intrinsic motivation driven by personal interests and values is a potent force for long-term success and well-being. So, the AMCC's response to challenges may be intertwined with intrinsic motivation when individuals feel intrinsically motivated to overcome challenges. The AMCC could play a role in the reinforcing in reinforcing that motivation, creating a positive feedback loop. So, it's that feedback loop there, which is why I even thought of this AMCC uh, coming into the motivational, uh, the self-determination theory. So, the implications. Motivation is not a one-size-fits-all concept, as I said, and individuals may be driven by different intrinsic or extrinsic factors. Now, if the AMCC is indeed associated with the perception of challenges and motivation, the varying sizes of act activations of the AMC among individuals could be linked with the differences in their intrinsic motivation. Some may find motivation in autonomy, others in competence, and in some relatedness, all aligning with different components of SDT. Now, thinking about my, my theory on passion, it makes a little bit more sense now. When I heard this data, and it got me a little bit excited because I'm thinking, I wasn't speaking nonsense. Because even when I uh, created that, that brief for the podcast, I had what I was thinking about passion in my head, but I was like, it's not clear enough. And I was like, what are three things that would make it a bit more clear? And then I was like, confidence, enjoyment, fulfillment. And I'm like, I think those are the perfect three things. And I still think those are really good theory three, three things, sorry. The more I've spoken about with more people, I've realized that there are more than those just three things. And I did address that in that episode while I say, your environment has has a lot to do with it. Um, but those three things were a really good start for sure. Now, in summary, the AMCC and the SDT alignment, the anterior mid-cingulate cortex's role in perceiving challenges and the self-determination theory emphasis on intrinsic motivation both contribute to the understanding that motivation is a complex, individualized phenomenon. 
the brain's response to challenges may be a key player in shaping intrinsic motivation, reinforcing the idea that we that what motivates one person may differ significantly from what motivates another. And when we speak about the sculpted app and I talk about the um, the incentives there, I, I know that I have to make so many different incentives for so many different people because no one's incentive is the same. If you're, I spoke about this in my Motivation is Fake episode, which if you haven't watched, watch it. Now I did forget the last time I thought it was 40 minutes, right? It was eight. 14, 20, maybe it was 38, maybe 38, I think it was 38, I think it was 38, 48, remember that Nick, so, if I was to say, you need to climb my, to climb Mount Everest, and I will pay you a million bucks, you may do that, if you only have 20 bucks to your name, but Elon Musk, I ask him, that's a joke for him. It's not even worth his time. So, the incentive differs for each person. Expanding on the motivational factors. Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Maslow's hierarchy of needs outlines the hierarchical model of human needs with psychological needs at the base and self-actualization at the top. It suggests that individuals are motivated by the desire to satisfy these needs in a sequential order. Research supporting Maslow's theory has explored the impact of fulfilling different levels of needs on motivation and well-being. Motivational factors vary based on an individual stage of need of need fulfillment, and not all individuals progress through the hierarchy in the same way. Expanding with the goal-setting theory, goal-setting theory proposes that setting Specific and challenging goals can enhance motivation and performance. It emphasizes the importance of clear objectives and feedback in driving individuals to achieve their aspirations. So research supporting goal-setting theory demonstrates that individuals with specific challenging goals tend to outperform those with vague or no goals. Motivation is influenced by the clarity and difficulty of goals set by individuals, highlighting the role of goal-setting in driving behavior. Now, Again, to the Sculpted app, there's so many things that align with the Sculpted app here, which is why I created it. When I created the CP system, which is the crafting points, which is 1% Sculpting score equals 1 CP. Now, that's yet to be even decided. This is going to be a few years in the future, but the CP points would be, let's say you get 200,000 CP points, and that's maybe five years of work, okay? What takes you to do five years of consistent work on the sculpting score what took you five days and when you got rewarded for your five days work of your cp maybe you got 500 cp and you got so happy yeah let's go but then you get to a thousand and you don't get rewarded for that because that 500 that next 500 becomes really easy the goal has to go further and further away because your original 500 was a little bit difficult but the next 500 is going to be a little bit easier so the goal has to be a little bit further back because it, it just has to be out of reach. And this is where that, that theory comes in alignment here. And the heart, sorry, the better and better you get, the further and further away the goal needs to be. And this is what I've taken into consideration with the Sculpted app in terms of rewards, incentives, and things like that, um, which is a very interesting thing. And you learn so much about it, but that, that is a very cool thing about the Sculpted app as well. So I think this is ending it off with some analogies here. And we're at the 50-minute mark now. So... Just as different engines require specific types of fuel for optimal performance, individuals may be motivated by different factors. 
analogy underscores the diversity of motivational sources, and different types of motivation can be likened towards various fuels that power actions. Intrinsic motivation, extrinsic motivation, and other motivational factors serve as the driving force behind individual behaviors. Now, what an episode. What an episode. It's, it's, um, I loved it. It was brilliant. Like, even me, me creating the episode, doing the research, things like that. I actually hate making the podcast brief. The podcast briefs are so monotonous. I have to do a lot of research. Thankfully, Chad GPT helps me with some, a few of the summaries, um, which is helping my articulation, helping my, even just understanding of it. Like, I, I've said this in, in a few of these episodes before. I'm not a scientist. I, I'm basically dropped out of school. Like, my last two years of school, um, COVID, at home, and I was going to a Sydney school, and it was like a real smart school, so I just went to all the lowest classes. And then my last year, let's not talk about that one. Basically did nothing. I was just online the whole the whole year. I even did my HSC online, which is like my final exam for anyone from um, out of Australia. It's like GCSEs, I guess, or your final exams or wherever you come from. We've got a weird lot of Scandinavians who listen to this podcast, which is kind of random. Um, but yeah, essentially, last few years for me, to preface, I'm not a scientist. I would like to think in a scientific way. I'd like to think in a very uh, factual way. But yeah, there's so many things of which, you know, for me, I need help with. So that's why I use ChatGPT. It's a great resource. It helps me learn five times faster than I would without. So of course I'm going to use it, you know? That even feeds into, the, you know, this episode. But um, yeah, such an interesting episode. I think it was really good. And um I hope that you guys got something out of it. I, I got something out of it. I got a lot out of it. Like, doing the research and things like that uh, really, really helped. So, yeah, if you did like this, then drop a like because like he, we need to keep going to stop the podcast. I'm telling you, like, this, this podcast could be something awesome. So I hope that you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. And with that being said, I will see you in the next episode. Goodbye. <laughs>